and gentlemen. Welcome to Daily Power Parasha. Today is Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021. And we have a lot to talk about today in the Torah portion. Torah portion this week is Todot. And we learn about the life and times of Isaac and Rebekah. Because last week we learned how Isaac and Rebekah got married. Well, this week we learn about what happens next. So we yesterday we talked about how they prayed for a child and they got double what they asked for. They got two. They got twins. Jacob, Esau, and Jacob. Esau and Yaakov. They are diametrically opposed, completely different personalities as they emerge from the womb and as they grow up. One is a man of the field and one is a person who dwells in tents. In other words, one is out there in the world and the other one is the scholar, the Torah scholar. So I said yesterday um, in our conversation that I wanted to speak a little bit more deeply about these two personas of Jacob and Esau and maybe, maybe bring it down a little bit um, from the, the polarization that we usually apply. Like we usually think of Jacob, Yaakov as being good and holy and righteous and you know he's, he's a good guy, he's the good guy and Esau, he's the bad guy. The problem with that is it just becomes a, too much of a caricaturization of the truth. Personalities are not so simple. They're not so black and white. I want to share with you a powerful insight that's brought down in the mystical teachings of Torah, Kabbalah, and Hasidic philosophy to kind of put a, a bit of a different spin on the whole Yaakov, of Jacob, Esau dynamic. So here we go. Because... Let me lead into it with a question. The question we could ask is, one second, you're telling me that Esau, Esau was born evil and Jacob was born righteous? What happened to free choice? So what is this? Esau is born red and ruddy and, 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 and hairy and like a, this barbarian, this, this uh, you know, and Jacob is born this innocent, perfect creature. And that's fair. So number one, how is that fair? That some people are born righteous, some people are not born righteous. Number two, what about free choice? Like, are we doing away with free choice? Like, what's going on over here in this narrative? So because of these questions and many more, there's another perspective that I need to share that I think changes the whole way that we look at the story and the way we look at each other as human beings. And it's all based on a truth that you and I know intuitively, you and I know from experience, but something that's also brought down in Jewish studies, not even Kabbalah, in Jewish philosophy. Ramba Maimonides speaks about this. This is a truth in the human condition. And that is, there are two types of people. There are two types of people. There are those who are naturally drawn toward obedience and naturally drawn toward studiousness, naturally drawn toward doing the right thing by nature. And then there are people who are a little bit more, how shall we say, a little bit more excited about life, a little bit more passionate about life. So you have some people that are a little bit more calm and quiet and spirited. Right. On the right. So you have introverted and then you have more free spirited exactly on the other side. Now, is this a Kabbalistic mystical thing? No, this is a human thing, right? And, and, and you and I might be one or the other, or we might have days in which we're one or the other. We might have family members, close relatives who are one or the other. We might have siblings where we're one way and they're the other way. And the point is that no one, no one of these two is good or bad. 
It's just different personalities. In other words, some people are just given the characteristic, the, char the inner character of being a little bit more calm, a little bit more quiet, a little bit more withdrawn, a little bit more introverted, a little bit more rule following, a little bit, that's just the way, the way it is by nature. And some people are a little bit more rambunctious, a little bit more free-spirited, a little bit more, you know, out there and, and risk-takers. Risk so you have some people that feel a little uncomfortable to speed on the highway. And some people who their sense of adventure drives them to wing glide. Wing glide? Is that a thing? Wing glide? Where you put on the wingsuit? Hang glide with wings, you wing glide, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with those Red Bull ring, uh, um, wing suits, and they fly between two like, cl like little cliff mountain situations, and they have to turn sideways to fit through, and sometimes they hit the rocks and don't make it, but sometimes they make it through most of the time, hopefully they make it through. Like, then you have the, some people live for that, and, and, and a life behind the desk just, just would not work, just incompatible with who they are. Is one better than the other? No. Is one more virtuous than the other? No. Is one more good than the other? No. Different personalities. In fact, we could argue that the one who's more free spirit, the one who's more adventurous, the one who's more out there, who's more, you know, just grabbing life by the horns and running with it, that person could have a bigger impact on the world. Now, it could also be within our inner character, Let's slice it a little bit differently. Some people are less passionate, have less internal challenges, let's say. And some people are more passionate and are faced, confronted with more challenges. It doesn't necessarily always fall in the same way that the way that I mentioned it a moment ago, but sometimes it does. Does that mean that one is holier than the other? No. Two different personalities. Here's the thing. And this is what's taught in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. Every single person, no matter who they are, no matter what their nature, inherent nature is, has a mission on earth and an obligation to bring light into the world in their own unique way. So for the person that's a little bit more introvert, a little bit more calm, a little bit more studious, whatever, so they have their own way of bringing light into the world through obedience and doing the right thing and Torah and mitzvot, etc. And the person who's more out there, the person who's a little bit more excited and more out there and more adventurous, they can bring God's light into the world in a very unique way. So I'll give two personas, two examples. You have the scholar and the businessman. The scholar who studies Torah all day in a kolel is certainly bringing the light of God through Torah into the world. Without a doubt. And what about the person that goes to work 9 to 5? And even beyond 9 and 5? The person who's out there in the world also brings light into the world, a divine light into the world. Through business, through their interactions, through their dealings, through their earning money, and please God, lots of money, where they can then leverage the money to accomplish great things in this world through tzedakah and other forms of giving and, and, and charitable causes. So, so they bring light into the world as well. So the scholar, they bring light. The businessmen, they bring light. Everyone's supposed to, everyone has a role to bring light. Which tells us the following. 
Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, they were both holy individuals. As they are born, they are both holy. They are both pure. They are both righteous. Do they have different personalities? Absolutely. Is one more introverted, the other extroverted? Yes. Is Esau's personality by nature sometimes going to run into more challenges or temptations or conflicts? Possibly. Does that mean he's less holy? No. On the contrary, you can make an argument, and I think I would buy into that argument, that he's more holy. Maybe not conventionally holy, not the conventional um, definition of holiness that we might otherwise attribute, but on a deeper level, the idea that a person can, can, can go out there into the world and transform the darkness of the material world into a space of light and goodness and spirituality and morality and ethics, can that person have more an effect? Absolutely. So here's the thing. A person might ask, God stacked the deck against, against Asaph. Like, what did he expect? He created him to be this evil monster. No, it's not what happened. God gave him a unique personality and a unique, and a unique mission and all of the tools that he needed to achieve that mission. God gave Jacob a personality and a unique mission and all the tools that he needed to, to fulfill his mission. These two personas, the twins, represent two different modalities. I mentioned, a f- not a few days ago, I mentioned yesterday. The famous Midrashic teaching that when Rebecca, their mother, when she was pregnant and she, the, 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 her, the, her pregnancy was, was very painful. And I explained why, our sages say, why was this so painful? When she would walk by a house of Jewish worship, a yeshiva, the shame and every yeshiva, she felt a tugging inside. When she walked by a house of idol worship, she also felt a tugging inside. Does that mean that one of her fetuses, one of her to-be-born to be children, was programmed for monotheism and the other for polytheism, for, for, um, for um, a pagan worship? No. No. That would be a mistake to say that one was wired to be righteous and the other was wired to not be at least from a monotheistic perspective. That's not correct. The way Kabbalah explains it, one was wired to do good and only do good. The other was wired to get excited about the opposite, but have the ability to restrain. Or to be excited about fighting the negative. That's another twist on it. Because the passion personality might be the fighter for the good cause, whereas the calm personality might shy away from conflict. So you know what? I'm not going to get involved in conflict. Even though I see something bad happening, I'm not going to get involved. That's not good either. But the other personality could be that Asaph was stirring inside pre-birth to go give them a piece of their mind. You guys are serving Bubba Mices. Come on, guys. Let me tell you what's going on. It could be that was his passion. In other words, as created... Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau represent two, not represent, have completely different personalities, but both are kosher. We make a mistake. This is where humans make mistakes. Human beings make the mistake of saying, oh, one personality type is inherently good and the other personality type is inherently not good. So we need to modify the personality. We don't need to touch the personality. We need to direct the energy toward a positive end, but not modify the personality. Does that make sense? I've said this example many times, and I believe with every fiber of my being that it's correct. This happened. This is a true story. It happened with me. I used to direct 
our Sunday school, our Hebrew school here at Chabad in town for many years. And thank God we grew it from a handful of kids to like 60, 70, 80 kids. I, we once had a child. And I, I didn't teach. We, we had teachers that taught and I was directing it. And, and obviously dealing with, with all that, that's involved with that as far as, you know, um, children and teachers and parents and everything. Well, it so happened, once so happened, one of the years that I was directing that there was a child in one of the classes that was not behaving and was not listening and causing disruptions in the class and the other kids were of the nature that they wanted to learn. At least, you know, the, the teacher was saying, the other kids want to learn and this kid is constantly interrupting and, and I know this already, this is boring, whatever, like, oh, you know, just, just kind of derailing the class. So she tells me, the teacher tells me, like, I don't know what to do. I can't, like, what do, I, what do we do with this kid? Do we send them out? Do we tell the parents, like, it's not the right fit for him? So I said, hold on, before we do anything drastic, let me think about this and let me consult. I spoke with someone who I, uh, whom I value their opinion very, very highly. Um, actually, she's at our Wednesday night Torah studies class. Her name is Sarah Carter. She's an educator, has educated... Um, early education and other education, childhood education for many, many years. And so I, I called her up and I, I asked advice. She told me that here you have a child who is high energy and a natural leader in the, in the classroom because the child is, maybe I didn't mention this correctly or accurately, but the child was getting the other kids distracted and whatever. So here you have a child who's of a, of, a, of, a, of a rambunctious nature and a natural leader in the classroom, right? The other kids are following this child. Perfect. You don't need to change anything. Just redirect the energy. This child should be, tell the teacher, this child should be their assistant and their helper. Let them help guide the lessons, teach the lessons, present the lessons. Let, let them, let, get them involved and channel their energy. And then that's going to get everybody even more involved. And, so, and, and that's what happened. Literally, that's what happened. And this child became the greatest ally and advocate for learning in the classroom. And, and, and so often we make the mistake of saying, well, this is a good personality and that's a bad personality. And we have to get rid of the bad personality or we have to undo the bad personality. We have to change the bad personality. And what we're reminded through this conversation and when we look deeply at the Torah portion, reminded is, that that's a mistake, a mistaken way of thinking. To define one as good and one as bad is simply a mistaken approach. What, what's required from us, parents, educators, leaders, teachers, mentors, whatever, or, or human beings, is to honor the individuality of the other, to honor the personality of the other, and, and, and really embrace, not in lip service, not in theory, but on the ground, to embrace that this person with their personality can accomplish great things. And with a child specifically, how the question then becomes, how do we direct the energy? How do we guide the child to channeling their personality in an incredible way? So someone who's excited and excitable and rambunctious and, and out there, that's great. Don't change anything. How, do we, how does that person use that energy to create amazing change in this world or to create amazing good in this world or to create amazing, you know, spirituality in this world. How do we do that? How does that person get to that place? Esau, Esau was not evil. He was not, he didn't start off as evil. 
He is holy and powerful and good. I, from the womb, he was trending toward idolatry. That's not what he was doing. He had an inner battle, perhaps. Maybe he had a desire to conquer something. The, the, the passion is good. We just have to redirect the passion in a healthy way. Rabbi? Rabbi? Yeah. So, on the other hand, the very studious academic person, and let's say this person, he, he brings light into the world. Let's say he's not of the Abraham or Chabad model, meaning he's just focused on his own individual study. Right. So the light that he brings into the world, does it go beyond him? That's the question, right? Does it go beyond him? He needs a kick in the pants, right? He needs the other persona to rile him up a little bit, to be like, let's go. Get out of the tent. Jacob, let's go. Bounce out of the tent. Right, there's a limitation to the Jacob persona. Exactly. We think the Jacob persona is so holy and, and, and beautiful and spiritual. Sure, but it's a little bit insular. He's a man of the tent. It's like, it's great that it's spirituality in the tent, but what about the world, right? So the point is that Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob, they're both initially holy and pure. And we have to look at each other this way as well. We have to look at each other as holy and pure. Now, when Esau grows up, does he make bad choices? Yes. Does he, does he miss opportunities? Yes. Does he channel his energy in negative ways? Yes. Is there accountability? Yes. But it doesn't mean that he, does, that he, that he had no potential from the beginning. It doesn't mean that he still can't correct it. Whether he will or not is his own free choice. But there's potential and power there. And I think that's, not I think, that's the message that I was alluding to yesterday that I wanted to share. The idea that Yaakov and Esau, Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob, as, as, as initially conceived, I mean that literally and, and, and metaphorically, as initially you know, oriented, are both holy. It's only later as they grow up and as they make their life choices that each one each goes in their own separate ways and they do diverge to one doing positive things and one doing negative things, which of course leads to the dramatic evolution of the story. And as the story evolves, it becomes clear, at least to the mother, if not to the father, it becomes clear to the mom, to Rebecca, to Rivka, that this Asav persona has dropped the ball. Yes, he had the, the, he had the power and the calling and the ability to change the world, but he's not doing it. So now we have to get Jacob to do it because Jacob has to wear both hats. And that's something that I explained last year in our Secrets of the Bible course. That explains why Jacob steals or takes the blessing of his brother. Although I explained yesterday that he sold the blessings. But this is why Jacob has to take those blessings. Because Esau drops the ball. Esau, by choice, doesn't mean he doesn't have the potential to, to, get, to come back. But who has the time, right? We're not waiting yet for him. If he wants to get back... Sure, he can join forces, but as of, as of now, we got to get Jacob out of the tent and out into the world because he now has to do both. He's got to hit the tent, and then he's got to hit the streets, right? So we say to Jacob, hit the road, Jack, right? Jack, Jacob, sort of, right? 
Excuse me, are you Jewish? He has to go out and say that. Yeah, he's studying in yeshiva, and then he's going to hit the streets. Excuse me, are you Jewish? You need some candles for Shabbat candle lighting. Do you need some tefillin? Like, do you need a menorah? Do you need a mezuzah? Do you need a Jewish book? Do you need a kippah? Let's, right? Let's, yeah, you got to hit the streets. Now, ideally, I don't know ideally. Initially, this might have been two different people, right? There's the guy that's in the tent, and there's the guy, I don't mean guy gender specific, right? There's the person in the tent and the person on the streets. But sometimes, you know, it doesn't work. And that's what I was saying before. You know, in yeshiva, in a school, all the kids are studying, and one kid is not interested in studying. So what do you say? Oh, it's out, he's done. He's, uh, you know, he's a good for nothing. Of course not. Of course not. This kid put him on the streets, right? Get him involved in, 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 in advocacy and activism. Yeah, he'll study also a little bit. But maybe his main... This was the brilliance of the leadership of the Rebbe. The Rebbe always found the ability of the person, didn't focus on what they can't do. It's easy to focus on what... I wrote, I wrote in the book, uh, the, bo- the book that I wrote on inclusion. You know, you can focus on disability... But everyone has disability. Everyone has things they can't do, right? Everyone has things they can't do. You can't, even a person, how fast you can't run a certain speed that other people can't, can't lift a certain amount of weight, can't philosophize like certain, everyone has disability. Everyone can't do certain things that other people can. But do we want to focus on that? What's the point? Focus on what I can't do? Why? Who does that help? Let's focus on what I can do. So when it comes to someone else, a child, an adult, ourselves, our fellow, a loved one, a, a, to, a, a soon-to-be loved one. What are we focusing on? Are we focus, focusing on the disability, what they can't do, or their ability, their gifts? It's much more relevant. It's much more prudent. It's much more magnificent to focus on what they can do. So instead of focusing on oh, the kid can't sit by a desk, great, perfect. So don't have that expectation. Yeah, but what's going to happen? Take it easy. Everyone learns differently. Everyone learns differently. Today we know anyway in pedagogy that uh, sitting by desk all day is not, is, is not conducive for a big percentage of, of, of children in the classroom. So anyway, we know this, right? This is like, the point is differentiation is real. And the, the sooner we embrace differentiation, the healthier everyone is. We have healthier expectations and we place that person, we help that person get on a path for success as opposed to measuring themselves against some other standard. If Esav is measured against Yaakov's standard, he's going to fail. He's not the person who's going to sit in the tent and study all day. It's just not him. He has to be out there. The problem is when you say to Esav, if you can't sit in the tent, then that's it. You're done. You're on your own. That's the problem. We have to create a space for him to succeed out there. Does that make sense? All right. But that's, it, unfortunately, I mean, I agree with you, but that's contrary to what's going on today. You know, everyone has to be equal in, in classrooms. No one should shine, you know. It's, it, in your example, I, why yeah. does he have the extra privilege of being right. with the future, you know? Right. And I think, so I, I do think I will say about this, my, I'm not, I'm not in that field directly and, and, and 24 seven and, and ed, young education, early education or childhood education. Um, I would have to consult with my wife on this, but my understanding is more and more 
the, the, the educational philosophies are coming around to this and are already understanding this, that, that children are different, they're learning differently. Differentiated learning is the big buzzword. It's all about learning. It's about facilitating learning and the way that the student can be successful. It's understanding that not everyone sits behind the desk, not everyone frontal teaching is not, not effective for all the kids in, in the classroom. So I think more and more of this is coming around. You know, it's, it's, it's that magic balance, as you said just now, like between, um, it's about honoring distinction equally, but not equally. It's, it's like everyone is equally honored, but in a different way, if that makes sense. Like everyone has their own way of doing it and no one has to be like the other. But I mean, it's also not just in the young classroom. I mean, it's even as adults, you know, like in a business, like, you know, one person is contributing more, you know, information verbally. Meanwhile, right. there might be one person, you know, that has something written down very elaborate. Right. People think differently. I, I once shared this. Um, Leah told me it was a book that she was reading. And I feel like it happened with Disney or DreamWorks or Pixar. One of the, like in the film, one of the film branches related to Disney, maybe, I think, where they would always have meetings um, in, a, in the conference room. Their, the team had a meeting, and the way the meeting worked is that the head of the team sat in one place, and then the lieutenants, if you will, sat close by, and then kind of fanned out the lower downs, kind of were sitting at the, fur the furthest away from, from the leader, so to speak, leader. Well, one day, the... Um, the conference room was not, not available, so they had to do a makeshift meeting in another room. They had to scramble last minute, and the seating, everyone just kind of sat wherever it was. It didn't assume the hierarchical, you know, th and that meeting was the best meeting they ever had. Ideas came from, and they realized that when you create this structure of those that are important and have something to say and those that are just listening, then you miss out on so much of the conversation. And I know it's not exactly what you said, but it evoked what you said, and that is that everyone has something to say, maybe in a different way. So yes, power structure is, is important to understand the limitations of that. So we want to take down the power structures, but still maintain the individuality. So it's not about artificial distinction. It's about organic distinction, respecting organic distinction as opposed to imposing artificial distinction. So the artificial distinction of, well, you're more important, so you have an opinion. You're less important. You have no opinion. That's not good. That's not holy. That's not kosher. That's not, that's not okay. But the natural distinction of a person thinking one way and, and acting one way, you know, everyone having their own way of, of thinking and, and behaving and, 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 and managing their ideas, that's a healthy thing to respect and to, and to acknowledge. Anyway, all right, I don't want to belabor the point. Yes, Joy. Also, um, valuing a person's contribution. Yes. I, I mean, it's one of the worst things in our society is lawyers and doctors that they're great, they contribute and all that stuff. Teachers that teach our children, they have next to no value. Right. Ditch diggers. What would we be without ditches? Right. 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 Probably in a higher place. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, right. No, I'm with you. Yes, I agree with you. We, we as a society have these judgments, even if we want to think of ourselves as like very, you know, but it's, it's almost embedded in the, in, 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 in the in societal structure. And it's very important to recognize. This is something that Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy emphasize again and other parts of Torah emphasize again and again and again. That's like the body, right? 
So yeah, the head may be at the top and the head has its role, but the head can't go anywhere without the feet, right? I mean, it's just not going to, it can't do anything with the hand, without the hands. It can have all the ideas in the world, but it can't get it done. So then, so who's really greater, right? Or the point is that everyone needs each other and everyone has their role. So the most important thing to remember when, when, when and that's why I felt it's very important to introduce it today. When reading the story about Jacob and Esau, Yaakov and Esau, so we might think, oh, good guy, bad guy. It's a little bit more subtle and more nuanced than that. Yeah, he chose to, to Jacob chose to follow his path and whatever, but his natural path was a little bit easier. Esau got distracted, but both have incredible potential and both need to be harnessed and respected in their own way. And I'm not blaming the parents, but just saying like when parents or educators or friends or society says, oh, you're like that and attributes that less value, that, goes a, that is a very harsh blow to that individual and it makes it harder for them to see within themselves the ability to, to achieve their potential. Does that make sense? We don't want to make it harder for someone. We want to honor the other and, uh, and acknowledge their unique gift. Okay, all of that is a long introduction, um, but let's jump back inside now. We are up to reading number three. The story is going to unfold. Okay, here we go. Um, oh, okay. All right, quick <laughs> second part of the intro, but very quick. So we read about Jacob and Esau and their birth and how they grew up and how the lentils were, okay, etc. Then the story circled back to Isaac, to the dad. What was, so what was he doing all this time? What, what did Isaac do? So Isaac, there was a famine, so he went to the Philistine-controlled area, went to Avimelech. He wasn't allowed to leave Israel because he was holy. He had to stay in Israel, but he went to the Philistines to ask for some food and, okay. So he goes there and he says, my sister, it's really his wife. And the king saw them acting like husband and wife and said, what are you doing? Okay, so they, Abimelech the king put, I'm just recapping what we did at the end of yesterday. Abimelech said, no one should touch, no one should mess with Yitzchak and Rivka. And thus they, they lived there and things were okay. Now, let's pick the story up. Genesis chapter 26. And the man became great. Who's the man? Isaac, Yitzchak, the man, Isaac became great and he grew constantly greater until he had grown very great, which by the way is a lesson in life. Even after you become great, you have to grow to consistently or constantly become even greater. And that's a message for us as far as growth. Growth is unending. If we, if we've, if we grow and then stop growing because we think we've achieved, then we're, we're already backsliding because life the sign of life is growth. If we're not growing, then we are receding. We're going backwards. Um, maybe you could say life is like an escalator going down, right? If you stand in the same spot, <laughs> you're just going down. You got to constantly go against that gravitational pull, pulling us, schlepping us downward. So Isaac represents this. He becomes great, but he grew constantly greater. Let's continue. And he had possessions of sheep, possessions of cattle, and much production. And the Philistines envied him. Remember, he lived amongst the Philistines. The king had told the, the, his people, don't touch this guy and his wife. Don't mess with them. They're allowed here. They're good. But Isaac is a little too successful. And now it's um, arousing the jealousy and the envy of the locals. Here we go. 
So what they do? They did a bit of an attack. And all the wells that his father's servants, Abraham's servants, had dug in the days, well, in the days of Abraham, his father, I guess that's redundant a little bit, the Philistines stopped them up and filled them with earth. The Philistines were so jealous that they sabotaged the wells that Abraham had dug, that Abraham's servants had dug. They stopped them up with, with earth. They basically poured dirt into it. No more water. And Avimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you have become much stronger than we. It's interesting, you know, I'm teaching, we're teaching now this anti-Semitism course, and I can't, you know, my lens is definitely thinking along the lines of anti-Semitism. I mean, think about it. Think about the, the classic anti-Jewish tropes of the Jews being rich, right? Yeah, right there. And the idea of expulsion. Yeah. Maybe a little fear-mongering. You become much stronger than us. We're afraid of you. So, like, what are you going to do to us now? So, we see, like, subtle hints of this classic thing that has been around, you know, since the Jewish people began of, of this, this envy, this distrust, this uh, idea of expulsion. All right. Of the makes sense. 17. And Isaac went away from there. And he encamped in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. So he left the city or left the main area and went to the valley of Gerar. Okay. And Isaac again dug the wells of water, which they had dug in the days of his father Abraham and the Philistines that stopped them up after Abraham's death. So Isaac redug all those wells. So Isaac is sent away, away from the people, the Philistines. And uh, he digs, he redigs the wells that his father had dug that had been filled up. And what he named them? He named them, he gave them names like the names that his father had given them. In other words, he named them the same, the wells, he named the wells the same names as his father. And Isaac's servants dug in the valley. This is a new well. So he, he, he uncovered, he redug all the old wells and, he, and then they dug some new wells. So they dug in the valley, they found there a well of living waters. That's good. In the valley where, where they moved to, right? And the shepherds of Gerar, the locals, because there were still locals around, the shepherds of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's shepherds, saying, the water is ours. The water is ours. You guys came here, you're digging wells, and you're taking the water? It's ours. So he named the well Asek. Asek means contention, contentiousness. Why? Because they had contended with him. That was a well of strife. A well of contention. So they dug another well. And they quarreled about it also. The locals said, no, you got, you're digging up our, 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 our vicinity. It's our water. So what did he name it? So, so Isaac named it Sitna. Sitna means, again, Sitna means um, animosity, quarreling. And he moved away from there. So he moved. So the first time he dug and dug again, now he moved. He moved away from where these shepherds were. And he dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. I guess he moved far enough away where they, they didn't have a claim on that land, on that water. So he named this third well Rechobot. And he said, Rechobot means broad and wide. He said, for now the, the Lord has made room for us. Rechobot means broad, wide room, a lot of space. God has now made space for us, room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. We finally found our space, and no one is bothering us. So this is the evolution, if you will, 
of the journeys or the travels of Isaac, Isaac begins um, near Avimelech the king. Um, the locals are jealous. He's successful, so he moves away to the valley. He digs wells. The locals contend with him, so he moves further away. And now he lives in peace. What's the moral of the story? Not every battle has to be fought. Sometimes you just have to walk away, right? Sometimes you just walk away, give some space, and continue to move on. Not every battle has to be fought, tooth and nail. Okay, questions or comments on this reading? This concludes reading number three. Are we doing another one today? Um, that's a good question. Let's think about this. So today, so tomorrow is what? Tomorrow is Wednesday. So the question, yeah, let's do four. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Because on Wednesday, we can do five and six. And then on Friday, because there's no Thursday, we'll do seven and a half hour. Good. Okay, let's do fourth. Okay. Four. Reading number four. So Isaac, oh yeah, it's a short reading. Perfect. The continuation of the Isaac story. So an Isaac went up from there to Be'er Sheva. That's back to... Um, that's out of the Philistine property, I think. Yeah, that's a way, that's much further away from the Philistines. He went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him on that night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of Abraham, my servant. So God appears to him and says, No need to fear. No need to fear. I am with you. Which, by the way, tells us that, that meditating on the fact that God is with us is the antidote to fear, right? Why not fear? Because I am with you. Knowing that God is with us neutralizes fear. And he says, I will bless you and multiply your seed for the sake of Abraham, my servant. Okay. And Isaac built an altar there in Beersheba where God appeared to him and he called in the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And Isaac's servants dug a well there. That seems to be the theme, well digging. Wherever Isaac goes, they're digging wells. Sometimes they work out, sometimes it's con controversy. Whatever, either way, they're digging wells. That's the thing. I guess you have to drink. There's no, uh, there's no faucets, there's no tap. You just gotta, you gotta dig. So now Avimelech comes after him. In a good way, but he, he chases after him. Avimelech went to him from Gerar. Gerar was the, was the main city. That's where he, Isaac was initially when he went down to, to the Philistine area. Then he went to the valley of Gerar, which is outside. And then he went out to Beersheba, but Avimelech now makes the travel from Gerar to Beersheba. And a group of companions went with him, including Pichol, his general. So, you know, the intentions of this are a little bit questionable. You have the king a group of high-ranking companions, and the general. What do they want? And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me, and you sent me away from you? In other words, you told me, as you remember from last reading, you've become too great, you've become too strong, everyone's jealous, you got to get out. You sent me away, and then when I went away, the, the shepherds argued with me. So I went further away, and now I'm in Beersheba, so I thought we're done with each other. Why are you here? Why have you come to me if you hate me and you sent me away? What's going on? I'm getting mixed messages, Avimelech. Do you want to have a conversation or you don't want to have a conversation? So they said the following. They said, we have seen that the Lord was with you. 
So he said, let there now be an oath between us, between ourselves and you, and let us form a covenant between, uh, with you. So they said, look, God is with you. It's clear that God is with you. You are successful. Remember I said yesterday that he planted in a bad year, in a bad land, and it grew a, thousand, a hundred times more than it should have. Me'a sha'arim. He was wildly successful. And then everywhere he went, he was able to dig, to dig wells. And even if it was controversial, but nonetheless, his well, he was clearly a blessed person. And very wealthy with cattle, as we read before in the, in the previous reading, reading three. So Avimelech says, we want to make an oath. We want to make a covenant with you. And what's the oath? What's the covenant? It's if you do not harm us, as we have not touched you, and as we have done with you only good, and we sent you away in peace, so do you now, so do you now, blessed of the Lord. Basically, they said like this. That's the, the language, I wish it was translated in a more readable way, but it's sticking with the original Hebrew, which is written in a bit of a, at least for the English reader, a little bit backwards. But I'll try to reframe the sentence. They basically said to him, what's the covenant? What's the deal? What's the agreement? What's the oath? Look, we haven't harmed you. We didn't touch you. We didn't touch your wife. We didn't harm you financially. We let you be. At some point in time, we said it's healthier if you move elsewhere. That's true. But we didn't hurt you in any way. We've done only good. We gave you parts of the land. We allowed you to be whatever. So now you promise to only be nice to us. We've been nice to you. You'll be nice to us. Let's be nice to each other. So that's the covenant. That's the deal. And we'll see tomorrow that that's the deal that becomes the, the covenant, the bris, the covenant with Avimelech. Okay, so that takes us to the end of this reading. Again, a, a fairly short reading. Um, let's see if there's any Rashis that might be interesting. Um, yeah. Rabbi, I was just looking at Habad.org and I came upon an art uh, in, about the meaning of the wells. The, the, yes. The deeper meaning. Of, and I found an article that I read, was reading the whole article. I thought it was so great that I guess who the author was. Dina Schusterman. So nice. Oh, nice. It's in the chat? Oh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing. Why did Isaac dig so many so many wells? Perfect. Let's pull up. Can you guys see that screen that I just pulled up? Yeah. Okay, great. Why the wells? Dig, in, dig deep inside of yourself. There is fresh, restorative water deep within our beings. Yes. When we dig deeply, we find new strength, new purpose, and new reality. Well digging tells us that the surface is not the only reality. There's more than meets the eye. There's more of you and more of your fellow beings. There's water below, and water is the essential part of the essential qualities you need to get through your life. Isaac did not do all the digging alone. Perhaps you need help finding your well too. Torah and mitzvot are also compared to living restorative waters. Sometimes digging deep means finding your own personal path, your own personal depth, and finding a new depth in your path as a Jew. Beautiful. Beautiful. So that's, that's really a, a great theme to end on. The theme of wells. And again, if anybody wants, um, uh, Donna shared this link in the chat. And you can find it. Chabad.org, guest columnist, Dina Schusterman. Why did Isaac dig so many wells? Which really is a, it's a great question and a great topic. Because as we saw today, we don't know much about Isaac. We know what happens to him. His father brings him as an offering. His wife is found for him. 
His children are born to him. We have, there's a lot of, I mean, he prayed. I, we have all, very little of what he does. What he does primarily is dig wells. And there's a powerful lesson. As Dina writes, the powerful lesson is the idea of digging deeper and recognizing that the surface that we see is not the only true reality. It's not the true reality at all. You look at another person, and that's what we were doing before, hopefully with the conversation about Esav and Yaakov. You look at an Esav and you say, this guy's trouble. This guy's trouble. You got to get him out. That's when you don't dig. That's when you look at the surface. When you dig a little bit deeper, you realize, one second, Esav has incredible potential. This kid, potential. This person, potential. You could look at the surface and look at all the things that are wrong. Look at all the things that are not going to work. You look a little bit deeper, you realize, oh, so the process of well digging is to identify, to be a well digger, one second, let's, let's, take, let's start from the beginning. To be a well digger means that when you, look at the, when you look out at the landscape, you can imagine that there's water beneath. You have to have the vision of potential. If you think that what you see is what you get, then you're never even going to start digging. So the, the step one is the vision of, oh, there's something deeper here. Or something beneath the surface. Step one. Step two then is digging. Step three is reaching. Step four is bringing it out into the open. Step five is enjoying the life-quenching waters that you find. This is true for us personally, as it says in the article there. It's true for us individually and for how we perceive others. When we look at others, do we see only the surface? Do we look deeper? If we look deeper, we can find that core. We can find that beauty. We can find that reservoir of of, of, of the gifts that they have. And for ourselves, do we judge ourselves by our surface, by what we've always been, so to speak, or do we look deeper and say, wait a second, there's, some, there's, something, yet I, there's something that I have yet to achieve. There's something deep inside of me that I can bring out and share with the world. That's the, the concept of growth. This is what Isaac was doing, constantly growing, constantly digging, constantly bringing out of himself water and bringing out the water of those around him. When we are constantly growing and knowing what we have inside, that organically affects the way we look at others. If we look at ourselves as growing you know, people, as growing human beings that are constantly rediscovering ourselves, then we look at others with the same curious eye and the same um, generous eye of understanding the depths beyond the surface. And I'll, I'll end with this one point, not to do with water, but also with the earth. The Baal Shem Tov said, that the reason why we are compared to the earth, right, blessed like the dust, the reason why we're compared to the earth is because just like the earth, when you dig, you find the greatest natural resources, whether it's water or other natural resources or gemstones, right? So the same thing is true with every one of us. We are the earth, which means that inside of us, the greatest precious, precious materials, precious finds. We have to know this about ourselves, we also have to know this about the other. When we look at the other and say, ah, crusty, ah, earthy, just means we haven't dug yet. Just means we haven't looked beneath the surface. So get the radar, whatever radar, you know, earth penetrating radar we need to look within and the without. Beach. The beach. You know, yes, the, the metal detector, <laughs> the wand. Get the wand. Get the wand. All right. My friends, um, it's always great to study Torah with you. I actually have a very intriguing meeting now with Brooklyn, with JLI, 
because I am one of the course editors on a brand new course called The People and the Books. And the Books. An exploration of 3,000 years of Jewish learning. In case you've ever wondered, what's Torah, what's Talmud, what's Mishnah, what's Kabbalah, what's Chassidus, what's Musr, what's Midrash? We have to wait for the course. Next winter. (laughs) Next next winter. That's how early JLI is. A very, very um, thought out. So this is lesson one. It's a great lesson. And I have a schmooze now with the lesson author, Rabbi Yankee Tauber, who you might recognize from Chabad.org. He writes a lot of the articles on Chabad.org. So... We have a small group of editors that are going to give some feedback on this lesson. So that's where I'm headed Did you get the the graphic for the art jewelry class yet? Yeah, but I'm not. Oh, I needed to get back to the designer on that. Um, Because, I mean, it's the 14th. We need to start. I know, I know. know, We we need to get cracking on it. Yeah, I'm on it today. I'm going to send you something. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Good stuff. We'll see you guys. Have a wonderful day tonight. Outsmarting Anti-Semitism, 8 p.m., Tomorrow, same bad time, same bad channel. See you guys. It was such a great class. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, Sarah, Sandrine, and Donna. We'll see you guys soon. Bye.